morning, Pillar Church. Um, Good morning, Pillar Church. Uh, my name is James Ramsire. I've been a member here at Pillar for about seven years now, which is just crazy to think about. Um, seven years. It's a, it's a joy to be able to share uh, God's word with you this morning. Uh, most of you will know my wife, Lydia. She's the children's ministry director here, and we have three little boys who run around here in the mornings like this is their home. They own this place. Uh, Pip, Ezra, and Simeon. Uh, you may or may not know uh, that my oldest son, Pip, has a rare uh, genetic disorder called PKU. And PKU means that uh, his body can't break down protein properly. Um, so there's a risk of it building up in his bloodstream and making its way into his brain, and it can cause um, uh, seizures, uh, retardation, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, forms of brain damage in general. Um, there's, there's no cure for PKU, but it is treatable. It's, uh, it's treated by his diet, so since he can't break down protein, uh, he can't eat much protein at all. So we have to weigh out his food, count his protein, make sure he's not getting too much. Uh, we give him a formula, which is like a, a, a protein replacement, basically, so that his muscles can still grow, and it tastes awful. Um, uh, and we also uh, do blood spots every other week, so we gotta like 
uh, you know, prick his finger, uh, get the blood onto these little pads, and we send him into the lab, and uh, we wait, and we wait until those results come back uh, so that we can know whether, whether our little boy's brain is okay. And so finally, when we get those results back, if they're, if they're good, if it's in the right range, we you know, breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, and then it's on to waiting for the next result. You know, so ever since Pip was born, we've been living by trusting a promise. Trusting the promise that if we follow it and give him the formula, the results will be a healthy brain. Um, most of the time, this is just life for us. You know, we don't really think about it too much. It's just what we, what we do. You know, we can go for many weeks or months at a time where his levels are great and we're just thankful for treatment. Um, but there are also moments when Lyd and I have felt um, totally you know, overwhelmed in the middle of the week waiting for those results. You know, in, the, in those dark moments, uh, there's just something unnerving, disheartening. You know, it's, we're, we have a total lack of control about what's happening. And... And it's uh, disheartening that, you know, there's a promise that we've been given. It's a beautiful promise. Uh, and we've been holding on to that promise over a long period of time, but we have not yet seen the promise realized. Right? You know, it's great to get those reassurances once every other week uh, that he's doing well, but the ultimate goal for us isn't that he has a healthy brain at age five, you know, but age 50 and age 80, you know, Lord willing. You know, um, it's, it's nice that we get to see the small glimpses of the promises, of the promise, but we must live every day knowing that we've not seen the promise realized. But for now, we trust the promise. That's all we can do, right? We trust the promise. I think that this is maybe something that uh, Christians struggle with a little more than we'd like to admit. God has promised us so many beautiful things, things that our souls... Uh, long for in the deepest part of our souls uh, God has promised us those things you know that he will wipe away every tear that there will be no more pain no more sin in this world that we will be redeemed and restored to our creator and uh, and the truth is we don't find any of these promises fully realized in this life none of them none of them are fully realized in this life um, Andrew Peterson uh, describes this experience. You can go ahead and take out your bingo card for James Sermons and check off Andrew Peterson. I almost always quote him. Um, uh, in his song, No More Faith, he describes this experience like this. He says, um, I say faith is a burden. It's a weight to bear. It's brave and bittersweet. And hope is hard to hold to. Lord, I believe, only help my unbelief until there's no more faith and no more hope. I'll see your face, and Lord, I'll know that only love remains. Well, this, I think, expresses well what complexity we feel uh, in our waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And we can think of the psalmists who over and over again cry out, how long, O Lord? Now, they're asking God in desperation to fulfill his promises. So this brings us to our, uh, the main point of our passage today. Um, why has God done it this way? Why has God seen fit to set things up this way? Where experiencing God's promises, 
experiencing God, God's promises is only realized through a seeming unending waiting on his promises. You know, the main point for today, the, the main question that I think this text answers is why do the promises of God depend on faith? Why do the promises of God depend on faith? That is the question that uh, the text we come to today answers. And maybe you've never put it uh, in those exact words, but um, Paul, in this passage, I think, not only vindicates the asking of that question, but answers it in a way that should cause our, our, heart, our hearts to um, be joyful and worship the Lord. Okay, so, so that's the question we're going to be asking today. Why do the promises of God depend on faith? And we're going to find four answers. So if you're an outline person, we're going to find four answers to this question. Why do the promises of God depend on faith? And the first reason that we see in the text for why God is chosen you know, to grant righteousness to faith is that faith confesses human weakness. Faith confesses human weakness. Look with me. Uh, let's read verses 13 through 15 here. Paul writes, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So let's take a look at the context here. Paul has been arguing uh, throughout Romans that, that we are all condemned by our sin, that, that uh, none of us is righteous, so we need a righteousness. Right, in order to be right with God. For, in order for him to declare us right before him, we need a righteousness from outside of ourselves. Um, and, and here in this passage, he is arguing uh, for faith being the means through which we obtain that righteousness that we need to be right with him. And here, specifically, Paul is calling back to Abraham receiving the, this great promise from God that he would be the father of many nations that many nations and kings would come from him and that his promise would take possession, uh, and that his offspring, sorry, would take possession of the land as an inheritance. And we can see this in the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17. And Paul focuses in on how Abraham will receive this great promise from God. How does he receive the great promise? Does he obtain it through a strict obedience of the law? Strict obedience to the law? No. Uh, does he receive it by his own striving, his own, uh, he and his wife's conniving schemes? No, Paul tells us that it did not come through the law. So Paul is arguing here that it is not Abraham's ability to keep the law that brings forth the promise. We can see this clearly in Genesis 16, right? Right in between those two promises that God makes to Abraham. Genesis 16, where, where uh, Abraham commits adultery, and produces an illegitimate son with his wife's servant, Hagar. So we know that God's promise is not obtained through the keeping of the law, but rather, Paul says, it comes through the righteousness of faith. And next, Paul sets out this hypothetical scenario. He says, if the adherents of the law are to be the heirs of this promise, they're to be the ones who receive this promise, faith is null and the promise is void. If it were the case that our works were what we relied on, for righteousness and standing before God, what would be the result? And we need to look at this closely because I think this is all our tendency. It's, it's too easy for us to fly by this. Paul says that faith would be null if we were to rely on our works to be right before God. Faith would be null 
and the promise would be, would be void. So if we, so any faith that we did have, if we add trusting in our own works, it, it nullifies that faith. It would be made ineffective, that faith. Because that's what faith is, isn't it? Faith looks to someone else, something outside of ourselves, and hopes in that. By its very nature, faith depends upon and relies upon another. So going back to relying upon our own good works renders that faith completely useless. To be, uh, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that faith is a get-out-of-work-free card and that we can simply get our ticket to heaven punched and then sit back and relax. No, you know, James uh, warns emphatically against this. He, uh, he says that the only type of faith that doesn't have works is a dead faith. Right? So faith produces good works in us, but Paul here isn't talking about what faith looks like per se or, or what it does. Rather, he's focusing in on, on what makes us right before God. That is the question that Paul is asking. What makes us right before God? And I think Paul is clearly setting forth that the only consideration that God takes into account is on that question is whether or not we are trusting in his promises. Uh, my parents teaching me uh, that if I ever tore out a check that I didn't get to use before I cut it up and shred it and put it away, you know, I, I should write in big, bold letters in pen or permanent marker the word void on the front of the check, right? That way, uh, even if someone went through the trouble of taping uh, the shredded pieces back together, it would still say in big, bold letters, void. It would still say that that promise of money from my bank account, what is, which is what a check is, that promise of money from my bank account to yours is canceled. Right? And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying if we were to rely on our works to be right before God, the promises of God would be canceled. Right? And what is... Paul's justification for such a strong statement, because that is a strong statement. It's our sinful nature. Look at, look at verse 15. He says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. You know, Paul shows us how foolish it would be to, trust in, uh, to put our trust in the law, our ability to keep the law, because he points out that the law is the very thing that condemns us. After all, the, after the fall, all the law does for us is teach us where our sin is, and therefore it calls out for judgment against us. In chapter 3 of Romans, Paul says that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law cannot change us. The law cannot save us. But we're so quick to fall back on all the good things we've done, as if the scoreboard is in our favor. Brothers and sisters, the scoreboard is not in our favor. You know, Paul says, open your eyes and see that our, work, that our works of the law are not something to rely upon. Rather, it is crying out for our blood. Faith, on the other hand, knows this. Faith recognizes our tragic position in relationship to God and cries out to him for salvation. Faith confesses human weakness. Well, next, Paul moves on to the heart of this passage. I think is, is the crux of the matter here. And here I will be invoking the sacred one thing statement. You know, you've probably heard teachers, preachers say this before. If you can come away with, it, with one thing from this, come away with this. I'm invoking that here, the sacred one thing. If you can leave here today understanding one thing about faith, let it be this, that faith 
secures the heavenly promise. Okay, let's look at what Paul says in verse 16. This is a powerful verse here. In verse 16, Paul says, That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. This is one of those great explanatory passages that, um, that gives us a, a peek behind the curtain. You know, it's as if the curtain is pulled back and we get a view into the mind of God. And if you're asking today, uh, if you're asking God why faith, if you're exhausted from the waiting and the trusting, well, there could be no clearer answer to you than this. Why do the promises of God depend on faith? It is so that God's promises do not rest on our ability or will, but God's grace. You see, God is not passive in Abraham's story. Sometimes we get it twisted. We, we think that um, God puts his faith in Abraham to do the work so that the promise will be realized. But that is the complete opposite of what we see. What we see is God taking all the ownership of his promises upon himself. You know, he's not dangling carrots in front of Abraham, hoping that he will take the bait and go get the promise. Um, let's turn to, to Genesis 15. I'm going to summarize it, but if you, if you want to just turn there, it's a, it's a really important uh, chapter in the Bible. Genesis 15. Um, uh, God here makes the, the famous promise in verses 5 and 7 that Abram's children would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and that God would give him the land to possess. Right, this is, this is th these famous promises here in Genesis chapter 15. In verse 6, it says, He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So there we see that faith uh, we see the faith that grants Abraham a righteousness from God. But look just two verses later. Two verses later there in verse 8. It says, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Abraham, Abraham asks God, how am I to know? Isn't that fascinating? And doesn't it sound like something we'd say? <laughs> We're so quick to dis distrust, so quick to see seek after signs, so quick to call for instant and immediate gratification of all that we think we're entitled to. But God doesn't turn back on Abraham here. He doesn't take back that righteousness that he had granted him, that he had counted to him. But instead, he, God doubles down in an amazing way on his promise here. He tells Abraham to go gather together a bunch of animals. So he gets the animals, and Abraham cuts the animals in half, he spreads their bodies apart so that there's this lane of blood between the two halves of all these dead animals. Now, this was a, a covenant ritual that was uh, somewhat common in the ancient Near East in which normally two people would make a deal with one another, a covenant, uh, um, uh, some sort of promise to one another, uh, and they would walk through this lane of blood and death to symbolize their commitment to that promise, to that deal. In effect, saying, if I don't keep my end of the deal, let me end up like these animals. But in this instance, God puts them to sleep and walks through the lane on his own, showing Abraham that God takes on the responsibility and ownership of his own promises. I think this is an amazing insight into the character of God, and this is just good news. 
that righteousness comes to us through faith so that the promise would be dependent upon God's might and God's love and God's grace. The story of the Bible is not that man must climb a ladder to get to God and his blessing. Instead, the Bible teaches that God came down to us in the person of Jesus Christ, in whom, Paul says, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Think about that for a second. Isn't that what we just saw in Genesis 15? God taking upon himself the responsibility of doing whatever needs to be done so that he can keep his promises. So if we go back to our text in Romans 4 um, and ask again the question, why faith, of, the, of verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Remember how Abraham asked, how shall I know? You know, God's answer was, in effect, I am God. That's how you'll know, because I've promised I am God. One preacher put it like this. Uh, he says that authentic faith is not merely believing in God. It is believing God. Taking God at his word, living in obedience to his revelation, whatever the cost, because you know down deep in your bones that God will always do what he says. That his speaking is his doing. That is true of God. God's gift of righteousness and justification comes to us through faith so that his promises and purposes would not be dependent upon our moral uprightness, but his. God stands in the gap between what he requires of us and what we actually do so that when we trust in promises, we are granted his righteousness. The righteousness that Jesus Christ displayed when he walked this earth so that he, in fact, uh, can grant us the blessings as ones who had fulfilled the law perfectly. Now, that's what this passage is all about. In order that the promise may rest on grace, his undeserved favor, and be guaranteed to all his offspring, specifically the one who shares the faith of Abraham. You know, this, this passage reminds me of the um, children's uh, Sunday school song I learned growing up. His father Abraham had many sons, and I won't sing the rest because you already know the rest. I won't uh, subject you to that. But, uh, you know, it's, it seems maybe trite, you know, but it's, it's true. We are Abraham's offspring if we trust in God as our only hope. And God has been pleased to guarantee the promise to Abraham's offspring. Praise the Lord. Well, we move on to reason number three, that God... Uh, has chosen faith the way that we obtain his promises. Reason number three is that faith trusts God's holy word. Faith trusts his holy word. Let's read uh, verses 17 through 21. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith 
as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You know, Paul continues his argument uh, here in 17, stating the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17, that God would make Abraham not just a father, but the father of many nations. Abraham at this point in his life is 99 years old. Sarah, his wife, is 90 years old. Is there really any hope for this couple to have a child? No, not in human terms. No hope at all. You know, Paul writes, in hope he believed against hope, which I think is a somewhat confusing way of saying, you know, the James Standard Version would probably put it something like this. Uh, against all human hope, Abraham believed God and hoped anyway. There is no human hope in this situation. But Abraham believed God and hoped anyway. I think that this portion of the text uh, really focuses on two things. Abraham trusted in the character of God, and Abraham trusted in the word of God. Look at how Paul describes the God who Abraham believes at the end of verse 17 here. The God who, he described as the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham knew that this was the God who made the promise. And Paul sets that description of God next to the description of Abraham's circumstances in verse 19. It's like he's showing us how God is up to the task. Do you see the parallels? God gives life to the dead, and Abraham is as good as dead. God is able to call into existence the things that do not exist, and Sarah's womb is barren. Paul sets these up as parallels. Abraham knew that God is able to do what he had promised. He knew what God had promised to do, and he believed that God was able to do it. You know, I recently heard a phrase for the first time. Um, I'd never heard it before. Maybe you all have. I've been literal rock. It's very possible. But the phrase is gimlet-eyed. Uh, I heard it, I think, in a podcast or something. I had no idea what was said or what was meant by it. So as one does, I Googled it, and I learned a lot. Um, the phrase means to be able to see through to the heart of something. Now, a gimlet is like a little hand drill that you kind of crank uh, on your own. It's a little hand drill. Um, so the idea is that someone who is gimlet-eyed have eyes to see through maybe like the surface-level facts of a situation into the meat of things. Maybe it's a little bit like when uh, you were a kid and you've just done something you probably shouldn't have been doing and your mom walks in and she's, it's like she's staring into your soul. You know, she knows that, that you've just gotten yourself into trouble. And I think that's the idea of being gimlet-eyed. And as I was preparing for this section in particular of the text, uh, it, it struck me that in a way, that's how Abraham is being described. You know, so, so we could make a new phrase. It's as if Abraham has gimlet-eyed faith. Through faith in who God is and what God has promised, Abraham is able to see through the impossibility of his circumstances and trust in God's promise. Just look at how Paul describes it in verse 20 and just marvel at how powerful faith is. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God Look at this, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Whether we're dealing uh, 
with you know, everyday struggles or we're in an absolutely desperate situation, can we say that we are fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised? Because that's what faith is, right? Hebrews 11, 1, the assurance of things hoped for, being assured of what you're hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen, being convinced of things that you cannot even lay your eyes on. You know, we can get into this uh, fog of war, you know, in life, where all we can see is two feet in front of us, the kids crying, the stress of work. We can get into this kind of uh, fog of war, but faith calls us to get our eyes up, to look to Christ and to see through the lies, the difficulties, the simple earthly realities that plague us every day. And furthermore, faith calls us to simply trust that God is accomplishing his good purposes and he will keep his promises. So I'm not suggesting in any way that our trials and temptations, our hardships in this life are trivial or insignificant or ethereal in any way. This pain is real. I'm not saying that we can in some mystical way stop feeling the pain of this broken world. But what I am saying is that we ought, in the midst of that pain, look to Jesus Christ. Think of how the author of Hebrews describes uh, Jesus' source of determination on the cross. He says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the the shame. Think about the saints who are spoken of in Hebrews 10, just before the Hall of Faith passage. Let's turn there real quick. I think this is such a powerful passage. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. The writer of Hebrews says, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You know, it's interesting that in both of those passages, uh, um, <clears throat> Jesus, uh, for the joy set before him, and this passage about these saints here in Hebrews, it, in both of those passages about enduring hardships, the word joy is used, isn't it? You know, where does that joy come from? I think that's what faith does. It allows us to see through the pain and hardship of our present circumstances to the joy that lies on the other side, the joy that God has promised us. We trust that his promises will come to pass. We trust that he loves us and that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Faith trusts in his holy word. Lastly, lastly, this final answer that Paul gives in this passage to the question, why faith? comes in verse 22 through 25. And here we get another verse that starts with the phrase, that is why. We get another behind the curtain. God counted Abraham's faith to him as righteousness, 
because Abraham believed that God could do what he promised to do. Because God was going to deliver on his promises, and Abraham trusted him in that. But here Paul turns to the readers and speaks directly to them. Let's read verses 22 through 25 here. Paul says, That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And we've been talking a lot about faith this morning. And here Paul, I think, gives us an opportunity to be, opportunity to be super clear about what it is that he's talking about. What it is that allows God to count to us righteousness. And I'll say something here that may seem controversial. Uh, I don't think that there is anything inherently good or righteous about faith in and of itself. You know, everyone in this world lives by faith. Everyone in this world by faith. Atheists, um, Buddhists, Muslims, everybody in this world lives by faith. People who don't understand how airplanes work are nonetheless in them flying around the world right now. People who don't understand how brakes work are indeed flying down 95 right now, I can promise you. And we could give examples like this all day long because the truth is, it's not our amount of faith or the mere presence of a vague, generic faith, form of faith that justifies us. It is, this is important, it is the object of our faith. It is what we are putting our faith in. The object of our faith that um, that grants us this righteousness. We are to trust in the one who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord because he is the only one who has righteousness to give. If we want to if we want it to be said of us that our faith is counted to us as righteousness, as this pas- passage says, then we must put our faith in the one who is righteous, the one who sent his son to the earth uh, to live the righteous life that we could not live, the one who died on the cross to take away our sins, and the one who raised him from the dead so that we too can have victory over sin and death. That is what faith in the living God does. And this is, I'm going to repeat this. It, it, it takes away everything that could keep you from God. It takes away your sin and gives you everything that you need to be with him. Perfect righteousness. That is what faith does. It takes away everything that could keep you from God and it, and it gives you everything that you need to be with him. So that as he has longed for since the day he created you, he can live with you in peace as a father with a son. You know, it's not, it's not enough for um, our sin to just merely be taken away. You know, that, just, that just puts us at zero. <laughs> you know, but God doesn't call us to zero. You know, we're negative right now. Okay? I think we can all understand that. We're negative. But, but it's not enough that he just puts us up to zero. Blank slate. That's not enough. God calls us to obey his law, fulfill his law perfectly. And through faith in his son, he grants us his righteousness so that, so that when he looks at us, he can see us as having fulfilled his law perfectly. And this series, you know, has been named uh, Gospel Clarity, and I think this is exactly how our passage today clarifies the gospel. The law condemns us because of our sin, and we are deserving of God's wrath. 
but through faith in God and his promises, we can receive a righteousness that we don't deserve so that we can live at peace with our creator starting now and on through eternity. And if you've never, if you're here today and you've never trusted in that good news, then I urge you to come to the Lord today. Today is the day of your salvation if you will put your trust in him. Come and taste and see that he is good. Put your trust in him because he is our only hope. Well, you know, I began uh, the sermon speaking of faith as a burden. Um, You'll remember, you know, my wife and I trusting the promise of my son's health, but never quite seeing the promise fully realized. Subjectively, this is how we feel sometimes, isn't it? We see it in the Psalms, and I think we've probably experienced it all ourselves, being just tired of waiting for the promise to be realized. But after going through this passage and and looking at the reasons that Paul has laid out, um, looking at the reasons that Paul has uh, laid out for God's use of faith, I I think that we can see that a more holistic picture of faith isn't my wife and I, you know, waiting, but, but a true picture of faith is more like my son Pip, trusting. You know, if I went to him today after church and I told him, okay, bud, from now on, you're going to do the work for the promise yourself. You know, if I was to ask him to choose what foods to eat, weigh it out on his own, to take his medical formula, that nasty stuff, every day, uh, three times a day, and to you know, give him his own, do his own blood spots, send it into the lab, read his results, adjust. You know, if I were to put that all on him, you know, he might do okay for a day or two. If you know Pip, he loves rules. He might do okay for a day or two. But after a few days, my son would fail. And it would be to the detriment of his health. But instead of taking it upon himself, refusing our help in pride, pride you know, Pip trusts that his mom and dad love him and want what's best for him. So that even when we choose things that he doesn't want for himself, he trusts that we know what we're doing. Even when we tell him uh, uh, no to things that he wants to eat, you know, he trusts that we know better than he does. Even if he has to eat that terrible formula three times a day, he trusts that mommy and daddy have his best interests at heart. And he is better for it. Well, how much more does our Heavenly Father love us and know what's best for us? Faith is not ultimately a burden. It is a blessing that can help us see the God who loves us no matter what. Trust in the Lord today, for he is good. Well, in a second, I'm going to pray, and I'll invite the band to come back up. But before I do, I want to take a second to prepare us for um, taking the Lord's Supper. As we we come to this meal each week, we are um, coming to remember and proclaim Uh, the sacrifice and death of Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished for us who believe. And this is a meal of salvation for those who have trusted in the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus. And we invite anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus uh, uh, to join us, uh, join in with us in the meal today. But if that's not your testimony, uh, we just ask uh, for you to, um, in sincerity and out of respect, that you would just allow those elements to pass on from you Um, we'd uh, encourage you to take this time to think seriously about your standing before God and uh, how you can respond to what you've just heard from God's word. So let's, let's, uh, let's pray.
Father God, we, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. We think of your immeasurable wisdom and the way you have set up your salvation, your unswerving faithfulness to your people, your steadfast love for those who have sinned against you. Lord, we are in awe of who you are and what you have done. Help us to believe. Not just to believe in you, Lord, but to believe you. We can't even imagine the, the impact that it would have advancing your kingdom. Lord, help us to believe. And Lord, that is what we long for. We long for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. And may your spirit drive these truths that we've just heard down deep into our hearts and conform us to the image of your son. We love you, Lord.